Hello and welcome back to the Audio DT with Reb T, the Audio Devar Torah with Reb T, the show where we talk about the Parsha of the week with some practical lessons to keep. We have now made it to the end of Bereshit, to Bereshis, my favorite Parsha in the entire Torah, probably because I'm biased, probably because it's my Bar Mitzvah Parsha. And I think it's a wonderful, wonderful Parsha for many different reasons. We've reached the end of Yaakov's life. He comes to Mitzrayim after not seeing Yosef for 22 years. Yosef was but a lad when he saw him last. And then he he reunites with him and he's a grown man married with two kids. He rules Egypt for a long time. And then Yaakov lives blissfully his last 17 years of life in Mitzrayim, a fascinating thought from Rabbi Rosner. The the idea of 17, I never thought about, about it before, but Rabbi Rosner brings up in his Parsha Shir how the number 17 twice is not a coincidence. The 17, when Yosef was a lad, the last time they learned together, Yaakov and Yosef, and then 17 years, the end of Yaakov's life, not a coincidence. Then Rabbi Rosner brings up how there's two elements of the life. It says, Yaakov, whatever the wordage is, but it says, It says that there are two, the, the years of his life, it doesn't have to say that, it could have said that he was 147, but it said the years of his life. And the phraseology used points out by the commentators that Rabbi Rosner picks up, is that there are two aspects to his life. Yaakov was tested his entire life with difficulty. And he said, I just want to live. It says, Vayeshev Yaakov. Yaakov wanted to settle in the land of his forefathers. And, and Rashi picks up, the commentators pick up that Hashem says to Yaakov, you want to settle? You want to live peacefully? That's what Olam Hab is for. You want to live peacefully also in this world? This world is about working, about de- dealing with different trials and tribulations and tests that I give you. Every test I give you is another banner I could raise you higher and higher and higher. But his whole life, the commentators point out, Rabbi Rosner mentions, Yaakov wasn't saying, I don't want to be tested. I don't want to live in an existence where I don't have abilities to do mitzvahs, but I don't want to be tested in such a way. I want to be tested the way we should all be zochah to be tested, with having good things, how we respond to our life, with having osher v'chavod, having everything in our life. Yaakov didn't merit that. The first 130 years of his life were the first type of test, being tested with tribulations, with trials, with difficulties, with hardships, with the tra- with the difficulty of living with an uncle like Lavan, with difficulty living with a brother like Esav who wanted to kill him, with the trials of Dina, and with Yosef being taken away from him. All these elements, that was the first act. So Yaakov very much knew how to live with that, but he was asking Hashem to let me be tested with the Osher. How do I live? It's very easy to recognize when Hashem is around, when there's tests, trials, tribulations, and bad things, God forbid. But how often do we see Hashem's hand when there's only good things? We should be zochah to only be tested to be seeing Hashem with the good things. And that's what Yaakov was saying. Can I please be tested in this way of life? Can I please see you in this way of life? I wish for that to happen. And Hashem finally gave it to him at the time he decided was good for him, at the end of his life, because the 17 years at the end of Yaakov's life were blissful. And the commentators point out, that they say if the end is good, then all was good. And so Yaakov, Hashem decided to give Yaakov the end of his life, those 17 years. And since those 17 years were so blissful for Yaakov, he was in his spiritual zenith at the end of his life, even though it was in Gullus. 
So the rest of his life, by definition, was also as well. That's the first point we want to pick up, thinking about the idea when it says, Yimei Shnei Chayei, whatever the phraseology is in the, in the Pasuk right now, I'm having a mental block, sorry. But when it talks about the years of his life, we should realize that there are two ways a lot of times that Hashem tests us. A lot of times people only recognize Hashem, see Hashem in the difficulties when we're dealing with pain, when we're dealing with travesty, God forbid, Lo'olini, we should never know from such things. But that's one element. The second element, how do we respond when things are going well, when we don't have difficulties, when we have money in the bank, when we, we have food on the table and we have all these things and we have health and happiness and only good things. The Gemara actually mentions as a side point, if you go 40 days without any sort of nisayon or any sort of test or tribulation from Hashem, you should get very worried because that means... That something's not right. The way that Hashem relates to us is that He makes sure to have a relationship with us. So He keeps testing us. He keeps sending us things that we should only have good things He tests us with. Like, where did I put my wallet? Where are the coins in my pocket? But in general, there are two ways, Rabbi Rosner points out, that we can mention of how Hashem relates to us. So He tests us in the difficult times, the bad times, but also He tests us in the good times. So we should all think about maybe if we responded better in the good times, saw Hashem, saw the Yad Hashem in the good times, maybe we'd be zochah to only have good times, because a lot of times Hashem wants to make sure we realize He's there, that He's ever-present in our life, that we live a life of Torah, chesed, mitzvahs, and that we live a life where we try to infuse Hashem in it. We shall be zochah to only see Him in the good times, and that's one of the things to think about in this parsha. But also the, the main element for me, in this Parsha, my favorite Parsha of the Torah, of course, my Bar Mitzvah Parsha, again, just putting it out there by as much, is that there are so many blessings in this Parsha. We start off where, when, where Yosef brings his children to Yaakov. First of all, he, he comes to Yaakov. Yaakov makes sure that, that he swears a very harsh wordage. Why did Yosef have to swear to Yaakov to bury him? Because Yaakov had tremendous foresight. He knew that Par would never let Yosef take this great figure this Yaakov and be buried elsewhere. Yaakov was a source of blessing. They, the commentators point out, maybe Rashi even, when Yaakov came, the famine ended. The viceroy, Yosef, his son, Yaakov's son, predicted seven years of famine. What happened? When Yaakov came, people were able to start sowing the land. There was river was flowing again, and there was food starting to come back again. So my question always has been, didn't people say, uh, why? what happened to the seven years? But it must be that they had tremendous faith in, in their ruler, in Yosef, who predicted the, the years of bad and predicted the years of good beforehand. But even when it was cut short, probably they realized Yaakov was a tremendous figure, a tremendous prominence and, and ever-present in their society, in their life, that they, they mourned for him a long time. You know, he was seen as a figure and they embalmed him in the way. But Yosef had to, had to swear to his dad, to Yaakov, that he would do this. And the only reason he's let go to go bury him later on in the end of Vayichi, in Shavi'i, it talks, in uh, Shishi, it talks about how it was a whole entourage for him to go. And, 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 and Paro says to Yosef, because you swore to your dad, that's why I'm letting you go. So Yaakov had to make Yosef swear. He had tremendous foresight that he would be allowed to go to take his father. We should also think about how another point to think about. Perkevus tells us, Ezehu Chacham Halomed Mekol Adam, who is smart, someone who learns from everyone, but also another phraseology in the Talmud in Perkevus, Ezehu Chacham Haroa Es Hanolan. Someone who is smart is someone who foresees 
the consequences of actions, can foretell the consequences of their actions. Think twice before you speak is a very good phraseology to have, because if we thought before we said things, maybe we could avoid pain in our lives and pain to other people. And if we also thought how we could go about things, if we thought about what the consequences of our actions could be, if we thought twice before acting, maybe we could do so as well. Yaakov, on a small level, realized he had to get his son to swear to him to bury him outside the land, so too we should be able on any level to foresee what we need to do, to foresee what we can accomplish and can be involved with. And maybe then there would be less pain, less arguments, less competition, and less trouble in the world. I always think about the good things people do, the faith in humanity stories, which are my favorite. You know, the guy had his store burned down or had a fire in Brooklyn uh, maybe last year or, or recently or, or the year before, and he was out of a place of business. What happened? A good Jew, an Erlich, a Jew, brought him into his own fish store and literally gave him a stand to sell fish. And I think, wow, if he thought from a standpoint of, I don't want to give my competition room, I don't want to give someone the ability to sell out of my store. I'm going to lose Parnassah. He didn't think that. He said, what would be the consequence? What's going to be the action and the reaction? Hashem is so able to give everyone Parnassah. You think I'm going to lose by doing such a tremendous mitzvah, such a tremendous chesed? So he literally let his competition set up shop in his store. And I love that story. When you think about what you could do to help your man, what the consequence could be, if you're helping, it usually will only be good. It will usually only help. It usually could only lead to good things. And the Parsha also teaches us about how to settle your affairs at the end of life. Yaakov, they say, the commentators say, Yaakov asked to be made sick. Before Yaakov did this, everyone died by basically sneezing, Rabbi Rosner points out also. What else method did they go? They didn't have any times. Nobody got sick. Nobody had sicknesses. But with Yaakov, sickness was introduced to the world because Yaakov said, I want to know when I'm going to die so I could get my affairs settled so that I could give out the blessings to all of my children. And that's what happened. The days of Yaakov drew near to die. How did he know that his days were near because he got sick and this was something unique, something never presented, never before happened in life. So Yaakov wanted to make sure his affairs were always in order. And it's a lesson for us. The Gemara says, you should repent one day before your death. And the students ask whatever sage said this, how do we know what day we're going to die? God forbid. And the sage says to him, you should live as every day as if it is your last. And in that way, all of your days will be in repentance. If we could take just a, me- a, me- a moment to think about that. How do we live? Do we live carelessly and, and, and without any, any thought to the world and without any thought to our affairs and thought to how we go about things? If we realize how limited our time really is on this earth, we should be zochah to have 120 years. But if we think about how little time we really have, if we realize that every day could, God forbid, be our last, we should be zochah to 120, of course, 120 years. But every day would be spent in a good way. Every day at night, you should think about what you did your, with your day. What, what use you made to your day. Did you learn that day? Did you take care of your spouse and kids that day? Or God forbid, were you selfish, sitting on the couch, just doing nothing and being selfish to yourself and just tuning everyone out, which hopefully that doesn't happen to anyone. But every day should be spent thinking about how to conduct your affairs and how to conduct yourself, how to conduct your time and what you're involved with. What are you contributing to the world? What are you working on for yourself? What traits are you trying to fight? You have that idea, you have that concept, you have that book, you have that cheer. 
you have anything in mind, you're, you're working on a program, you want to earn that, that degree to help more people or earn that certification, whatever you're doing should be that you're, you're conducting yourself in such a way to get things done. This Parsha teaches us so much how to conduct your affairs, how to think about relating to Hashem in two aspects, through the bad and through the good, the good times and the bad. And we should realize that we should also in life, in, in our relationships, realize that sometimes they're tested for the good and for the bad, but we have to be there for each other no matter what. There will be bad times, but there will also be very many good times, especially for spouses. Lahavdal, 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 even secular, non-religious society understands this. Do you take this person to be with you at good times and the bad till, till death do us part? Even the non-Jews realize it's for the long haul. Sometimes I say a lot to other people, I say to my wife, why is it that there's so many more people that don't make it for so many reasons that seem so trivial? Because in this life, in this society, it's such a disposable mentality. The divorce rate is so, so high, so much higher than it was many years ago. Because I believe people used to work on things. In a disposable society where everything can be taken, you could just check off irreconcilable differences, which makes no sense. What does that even mean, irreconcilable differences? Things, differences that can't be worked on? Of course, there are situations where it doesn't work out and the relationship can't work out. I'm not going to go into that right now. But in general, in life... There are going to be things where, where you're at ends. You're two different people, especially in marriage, but especially in relationships in general. You're two different people coming at a, a problem, coming at a situation with two different abilities and two different mindsets. There's going to have to be a way to work it out. There's going to have to be a way to compromise, especially if you have kids or making major life decisions, house, car, materialities, or anything in life. You have to figure out a way how to go about it. You have to figure out how to, how to, to go about things. And, and just as the Parsha teaches us how you have to deal with the good and the bad, Yaakov had a very difficult life with each other. We have to feel and work out how to deal with the good and the bad. And we should only be zochah to have good. Maybe if we have good shalom bias and good relationships and good ways of working with each other, Hashem will bless us to only have good in our lives also. But the Parsha teaches us so much also about the idea of blessings. Yaakov is sick. Yosef runs to bring his kids to visit the aging old frail, sick father of Yaakov, this great personality. And Yaakov doles out these blessings, these beautiful blessings. We say, because they were the paradigm we talked about a few weeks ago. They were the paradigm of the people to learn from. They were brothers who existed in exile, but still had the, the Judaism and still had the Jewishness intact. And they were the first brothers to really get along. And we talk about the famous bracha in this parsha, Hamala HaGoel Osi, Hashem is with us. We just have to realize it. Hashem sends His messengers, His malachim, physical and spiritual with us wherever we go. We say on Shabbat, Shalom Aleichem, Malachi Asharis. We say, come with us, angels, escort us to Shabbat, stay with us on Shabbat, and then you're going to have to leave us from Shabbat. They come with us. There is an extra Neshama. You say, there's a, excuse me, there's an extra soul with us. There's a divine spark within us. We have this extra aspect of us. You can almost feel it on Shabbos. You feel different. You can be different. 
you can you could feel the difference and and I love when the kids sing with me Shalom Aleichem that's how we bring in the Shabbos. The song brings in the Shabbos. Hashem, come into our home. Be into our home. And, and we think about these angels. We think about these people. Hashem provides the angels. And that's what Yaakov is blessing the children. That Hashem should always be with them. And they should have children and many children. And the paradigm of the children should be these role models that went back all the way to Mitzrayim. And then he goes on to bless each and every one of his children. And he goes on to talk about Musar, which he waited till the end of his life to do so, which in and of itself is a lesson. You know, criticism, we talked a whole lecture about of criticism and cynicism last this past week on the lecture series with Reb T, which we do twice a month, and it's on different podcast forums, especially iTunes and Google. But we talked about how interesting criticism is, and most of us don't know how to do it. But if there is something you need to say, and there is something you need to say, it should be done in the right way, with the right manner, the right words, and the right outlook. And sometimes it should be done you know, in subtle ways, and it should be done only at the end of life, which we learn from Yaakov and Moshe, and from David and Malach, all these things that wait until the end of the life, and Yaakov made sure to talk about it to Reuben and Shimon and Levi for their various sins. He made sure to do it in a way that they realized they weren't taken away from the Shavatim, that Yaakov wasn't angry at them themselves, but angry at their actions, angry at their anger. For example, for Shimon and Levi and for Reuven, with what he did in the private matters of life, you know, Yaakov talked about it. But each shavit, he gave them a special role because each shavit, each person is a spoke of a wheel of the Bnei Yisrael, has what to contribute, has what to give, has what to contribute to the Jewish people. You can't say, I've used this allegory before, I've used this mushal, this parable before. You can't say that I'm going to drill a hole in my part of the boat the whole Bnei Israel is in a ship, and each one of us individuals has a little part of the ship. You can't say, I'm going to drill a hole under my seat. It's not going to affect anyone. What do you care? What does it bother you? It's not going to hurt you. Obviously, the whole ship will sink, even if there's a hole under my seat. Because we're all one ship. We're all one unit. And if we think about a carriage or a bike with a wheel, and one spoke comes out, the whole wheel could pop off. The whole, the whole bicycle, the whole carriage could tumble over. Because every element, every aspect comes together and contributes to upholding the carriage, to upholding the ship, to upholding the vessel. We're all unique. We're like the different limbs of a body, the body of the Jewish people. Every single person contributes. Every single person is important. Another lesson to realize there, each shaver was given a special role. You know, Asher, you think about the, the, the shaver that has the oil and the shaver that's like a deer, the shaver that's like a wolf, and the shaver of the kingship of Yehuda. Each shaver, and they, they all go on to, I can't remember all of them offhand, but they all contribute something. Every aspect, every person in Judaism, every person in the Jewish people has what to contribute. I can't be a doctor. I don't think that's my calling. And you might not be able to write a book. You might not be able to do podcasts. You might not be able to be... A Rosh Hashiva, you might not be able to do a construction work. Everybody has their talent. Everybody has their occupation. Everybody has their individual unique capabilities that can contribute. Kol Yisrael Arevim Zelazeh. We're all one organism. We're all one being. We're all one unit. And we're all responsible for one another. We shouldn't say, I don't care about the people in Rwanda, especially the Jewish people. I don't care about the people that are in China or Japan, especially the Jews, because they're all the way in Japan. They're in Rwanda. 
That's not how we are. We're all one limb. We're all one person. We're all brothers and sisters descending from the same ancestors. We should all realize to be culpable and to be liable for one another. Gomar says you have to realize, we're all responsible for one another. What happens in, in, in Japan affects us here. And, and we have to be culpable for it. That's what we talked about the other week. Eglo Rufa, anyone that comes to our town, anyone that's involved in our lives, anyone that's involved in our surroundings, we have to be culpable for, we have to be liable for, we have to be responsible for. And as the parsha teaches us that each shavit has a distinct blessing, has a distinct part of being the whole, and each shavit contributes their own thing, it's important to realize that. And one shavit is, is the seafarers, and one shavit is the learners, and one shavit is the earners. And they work together, Zavulun and Shimon, one of them produced the Sanhedrin, and they had all the famous uh, learners, the famous minds, the sages, but Zavulun was a partnership. They did the work, they were the businessmen to support the to yeshivas, and that's very important nowadays also. You have the kolels, but you have the people supporting the kolels, it's a partnership. You can't say one is more important than the other. They're both equally important. The people that contribute, the people that learn. That's why in our lives also we should be learn earners for ourselves. We contribute to our own days with Torah, with learning. We also contribute to our our physicalness with our working and with our pursuing the occupation. There's so many things to learn from the Parsha besides for the blessings and understanding what we should also keep in mind, what we should remember for the future. Yosef at the end of the Parsha says, Pakodiv Kodeschem. Hashem will redeem you after 210 years of slavery, which Yaakov alludes to when he says redeem, the commentators point out in the Parsha's ago when they go down to get food for the families. After the 210 years, how did the Bnei Israel know? That it was time for salvation. What were the magic words that Moshe said? Pakod Yivkod, some say. Those are the words that Yosef said all those years ago. That Hashem will surely redeem you. And of course, people could say that maybe he just heard about it or memorized those words. But the timing had to be right. And there had to be signs. Also, Sumovsim. And then, then speaking through Hashem as Hashem's messenger. But realizing there's hope for the future. Realizing to look ahead and realizing what's the what's to come, hopefully with Mashiach and the base major speedily in our days. Just different lessons, different things to think about in the Parsha. And I wanted to point out two different verses, two different aspects of the verses, besides for the, the, the what we talked about so far here in Vayachi. So Chabad.org points out to us that we said it came to pass after these things that it was said to Yosef, your father is ill. We talked about how it says that Hine Avicha Chole in the Parsha, Avram, and, and we talked about this before, but it's good to see the source itself. Avram introduced aging to the world. Yitzchak introduced affliction to the world, and Yaakov introduced illness to the world. Avram requested old age, pleading before Hashem. Master of the universe, when a man and his son enter a town, none know whom to honor. Said Hashem to him, by your life you have asked the proper thing. It will start, it will commence with you. Thus, from the beginning of the book, aging is not mentioned, but when it comes to Avram, it says... Zakain, Seva Tova, old age was granted to him, as it is written, and Avraham was old, Avraham Zakain, and he come and Yamim, and he come along in days. So Avraham introduces the idea of old age, because Avraham and Yitzchak look like each other. Hashem did it on purpose of people, the naysayers of the generation were saying after Sarah was abducted, Yitzchak, Yitzchak was born. Oh, it was because of Avi Melech that she got pregnant. So what Hashem do? Hashem fashioned Yitzchak in such a way that no one could doubt that Yitzchak was Avram's son. They must have looked very much alike. But how were they to know which one was older? How were they to know which one to honor? Mepnei Seva Zakain, 
excuse me, you got to get up and honor an old person and realize the counsel is good. I think I saw that phrase actually on buses in Israel, which I thought was fascinating, teaching them, using a, an actual phrase from the Torah, teaching the courtesy and derech eretz to get up for someone older and give them the seat, which I always thought was fascinating. Side point. So Hashem made it that there was old age, so Avram could be shown that he was older than this, so people realized to honor Avraham. So he brought old age to the world that we should always honor the elderly among us. Realize that contrary to what secular society believes, that there's no quote-unquote productive output that comes from the elderly and they don't treat them right. As a as a general idea where, where they, the society only looks at productiveness. So they're going to spend much more time, much more money on saving someone who's much younger than someone who's much older. God forbid, lowly, and we should never know from such things, except for that crazy article in Aish where they spend millions of dollars on saving a 93-year-old or so, even though for a general Joe Schmo they wouldn't because he donated the entire ward of the hospital, but that's for another time. In general, we have to realize that there's so much the elderly can teach us and give to us. And they have so much life experience. It's fascinating to hear about things from many, many years ago. Old age is something to be revered. As Pirkei teaches, with each age in life, something else comes. And, and counsel and wisdom comes from the years in life from people who are older than us. So that's what we got from Avraham. Affliction is not mentioned until... Yitzchak, Yitzchak asks for affliction, pleading, Thus, master of the universe, when a man dies without affliction, judgment threatens him. But if you afflict him, judgment would not threaten him. Said Hashem to him, By your life, you have asked well, it will start and commence with you. Thus, affliction is not mentioned from the beginning of the book until Yitzchak, as it is written, and it came to pass, and when Yitzchak was old, his eyes were dimmed. So Hashem gives us afflictions, trials, and tribulations sometimes in this world so that we don't have to have it in the next world. It's good to have afflictions, but we ask for nesionos in small ways, like misplacing coins, like we talked about in the beginning of tonight's audio DT, or maybe misplacing a wallet or taking out the wrong coins. But affliction came way back in the time of Yitzchak. And so we talked about by Yaakov, he requested illness, saying, A master of the universe, a man dies without previous illness and does not settle his affairs with his children. But if he were two or three days ill, he would settle his affairs with his children. So Hashem said to him, By your life you have asked well, it will commence with you. Thus it is written, it was said to Yosef, Your father is ill. As pointed out by the Medrash Rabbah and Chabad.org. So Yaakov brought affliction, excuse me, Yaakov brought illness to the world so he would able to settle his affairs. Sometimes Hashem gives us things again to test us in the in the in the negative way, in the opposite way, where we're thinking where we're seeing that it's it's in a way that might seem negative, but Hashem does it in a way to try to get us to introspect, to try to get us to do chuva for anything, and to try to bring us difficulties in this world so that we could further and and enjoy the next world. And that's just a source from Chabad. And then we look at the idea of Yehuda by his bracha. Yehuda is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son, you have risen. The Medrash Rabbah and Rashi point out from Chabad.org, from the prey of Yosef you rose, preventing his killing from the prey of Tamar you rose by conceding she is more righteous than me. We talked about in the past Yehuda, knew from Tamar it came and he, 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 he stood up to the day and even though it was tremendously humiliating that he was with Tamar in such a way, he, wasn't, he didn't stop from saying she's right. And David, who was a, a descendant of Yehuda, also got up and said, you know what, Nasan and Abi, you're right. When he talked about the incident about Sheva and Uriah Hachiti, he gave the parable of the lambs, someone who had a lot of lambs, someone who had one lamb. David also said right away, you're right, I made a mistake. 
Shaul, by contrast, tried to defend himself. But Yehuda and, and David, much later on, realized that as well. The kingship of Israel, Chabad.org points out, originally belonged to Ruvain, Yaakov's firstborn. But Ruvain forfeited this right when he sinned by moving his father's marriage bed, and the sovereignty was transferred to Yehuda. In his blessing to Yehuda, Yaakov alludes to two virtues for which Yehuda merited the sole leadership of Israel. Number one, when the other sons of Yaakov plotted to kill Yosef, Yehuda saved his life by arguing that selling him into slavery would be a more profitable solution. And number two, Yehuda publicly admitted his culpability in the incident of Tamar, thereby saving her and her two unborn sons excuse me, from death. And that's Peretz and Zerach, I believe their names are. It would seem, however, I may be wrong, it, may, it would seem, however, that on both accounts, Reuben was Yehuda's equal, if not his superior. Regarding the plot to kill Yosef, it was Reuben who first saved Yosef's life by suggesting to his brothers that instead of killing him, they should throw him into the pit. The Torah attests that he did this to save him from their hands in order to return him to his father. Reuben did not know that there were snakes and scorpions in the pit, and then he was in fact jeopardizing Yosef's life. Torah also tells us that Reuben was not present when Yosef was sold, that he was shocked at not finding Yosef in the pit when he returned to take him out, and that he berated his brothers for what they had done. Yud, on the other hand, only suggested a more profitable way of disposing of Yosef. The Torah says nothing about any hidden intentions and was the cause of Yosef's sale into slavery. Indeed, we later find the others accusing Yosef. It was you who told us to sell him. If you would have told us to return him to his father, we would have listened to you also, Rashi points out. As for Yehuda's public penance, here too, Reuven excelled over him. Reuven too admitted and repented his sin, and while Yehuda was faced with a choice to either admit his responsibility or cause the destruction of three innocent lives, the need for Reuven to publicly confess was far less compelling. Furthermore, Reuven's penance did not end with a one-time admission of guilt, but continued to consume his entire being for many years. Our sages tell us that the reason that Reuven was not present at the time of Yosef's sale nine years after his sin was that he was occupied with a sackcloth and fasting. Indeed, as far as personal virtue is concerned, Reuven surpassed Yehuda in both the purity of his intentions regarding Yosef and the intensity of his repentance over his failings. But Yehuda was the one who actually saved Yosef, while Reuven unwittingly placed him in mortal danger. In the same vein, Yehuda's repentance saved three lives, while Reuven's remorse helped no one. In fact, had he not been preoccupied with his sackcloth and his fasting, he might have prevented Yosef's sale into slavery. So Chabad points out, this is the Rav Terebi talking, Accordingly, Reuven retained his rights as Yaakov's firstborn and all that pertained to him as an individual, but Yehuda surpassed him in the most basic prerequisite for leadership, that concern for one's fellow must always take precedence over one's own pursuits, no matter how pious and lofty these pursuits might be. Believing Yosef safe for the time being, Reuven rushed back to attend his prayers and penance, in effect abandoning him to his fate. While Reuven prayed and fasted, Yehuda acted. Yehuda earned the leadership of Yisrael because he recognized that when another human being is in need, one must set aside all other considerations and get involved, even if one's own intentions are still short of perfection, and one's own character is yet to be refined, sometimes one cannot afford to wait. Brings to mind the idea in Pirkei Avos of Bemakum She'in Ish, Hishtadel Lehios Ish. Sometimes we just need to get up and act and take care of things. We might think that we have to pray and introspect, which is very important, Often, but sometimes we have to act and get about. That's why when Moshe is waiting with the Jewish people by the Yamsuf, 
when when they're about to cross and before the Kriyas Yamsov, Hashem says to Moshe, this is not the time to pray, this is the time to act. The commentators explain, jump into the river, jump into the water, and the water split. Because at that time, that's what was needed. Someone showing faith by displaying their actual actions. Moshe was praying, but the time to act was now. So you have to act sometimes. Sometimes you have to be introspecting and davening and praying, but we can't do that the whole day. We're not supposed to be in the study hall the whole day. We talk about this often on many of the shows. We have to get up and act. We have to get up and do it. Someone who's given, who, who studies and acts is given the ability to study, to teach, and to act. But someone who only studies to study is only going to have the ability to study. Pirkei Elvis teaches us, Lishmor, Vela'asos, Ulekaim, is called Divriyatorazos, we say. Indomitating. We need to get up and actually do, not just study, not just be theoretically in the study hall, but actually do. How could you practice Chosh and Mishpat, deals of Halachos and Shulchan Arach, the code of Jewish law, of business transactions, if you're not actually in business? What are the relevance of learning the Halachos if you're not actually involved in it? You know, if you're studying about how to, to be involved in the kitchen, if you're never in the kitchen, what relevance does it have? And if you're studying the laws of tzedakah but you never give it, what relevance does it have? You have to study in order to practice, practice in order to live. You can't just do it in the theoretical. You have to do it in the practical. So Vayachi, my favorite Parsha teaches us so many things. We have to understand, like Rabbi Rosner pointed out in his year, that you have to realize Hashem comes to us in two ways, tests us in the bad and tests us in the good. That's how Yaakov was for many of his years until the end. So too we should realize Hashem tests us in the bad and the good, and we should hope to only be tested in the good. We should realize there are blessings in our life, and we should be zochot and many blessings in our life. We should realize that we're all aspects of the whole. We're all involved in, in contributing to the whole, and we should realize every person is precious, and realize that, that, that what we're supposed to do, we're supposed to get our affairs in order and try to make sure to introspect every day, to be involved, make sure to rush to take care of the elderly among us, make sure to respect the elderly among us, make sure sure to foresee the action just as Yaakov knew that Yosef had to swear to bury him so too we should think about actions and foresee actions and words in our own lives also understanding that illness and old age and and sickness sometimes can be a good thing it allows us to introspect it allows us to think about what's really going on what we're really supposed to do in this world and puts things in perspective Hashem wants us to be in our lives and sometimes He has to test us for us to see Him we should never need tests we should always see Him without needing tests and realize sometimes we just need to do action why Yehuda merited to be the kingship why Yehuda merited to be the the leader because He acted we we too need to act the world has so many things that need fixing the world has so many things that are not completely right and the world has so many things that really need to be set right and set stage why has mashiach not come yet we don't know but many aspects could be that the world is not at the place yet either they say either mashiach will come because we need it or because we deserve it how nice would it be that mashiach came that we deserve it how much a higher level they say if mashiach comes because we need it he'll come on a lowly donkey but if we comes because we deserve it he might come on the wings of eagles he might come in a majestic fashion we want it to be that is in a majestic fashion. If we could bring the world to a place, internalizing all our lessons, how to foresee things and how to, to, to see Hashem in our lives and how to be involved in taking care of the world, taking care of the others, what we could do to have Ahavat Chinim instead of Sinat Chinim, which destroyed a base of Mingdash, and to, to rid the immorality in our midst, to admit, rid the murder in our midst, and to rid and to rid the idol worship in our in our midst, to bring the base of Mingdash, to bring Mashiach. And idol worship doesn't just mean 
bowing down to actual idols. We talked about this in in a different talk also in the other shows also it means really when you're worshiping yourself or you're 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 haughty or your anger and you're 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 consumed with yourself that's also worship in itself someone who worships power worships money always running after power always running after money running after a reputation those are all worshiping the wrong things idol worship could be in many ways and and worshiping physicality and worshiping looks and externals and uh, just look at secular society, what they value. You could see what type of idol worship is out there nowadays. We have to rid that. We have to rid bloodshed. So much unnecessary hate. So much unnecessary violence. There's no Ahavan Chinam nowadays. Maybe not no, but there's not as much as there should be. Ahavan Chinam could be the way to, to counteract the destructive aspects of Sinah Chinam, baseless hatred, which is one of the reasons the Beis Hamidash was destroyed, one of them. So if we had Ahavan Chinam through Lashan Tov, getting rid of Lashan Har, getting rid of Motsi Shemra, getting rid of or criticizing and dealing with people in a nice way, a wonderful, loving way. Maybe these are ways that we could get back to the base of English and we could get back Mashiach. If we could bring ideas to the world, if we could bring practical ways to do so, maybe then we'll be final to bring Mashiach. And, and Vayachi, this penultimate Parsha of the Chumash and my opinion where so many things happen the end of Yaakov's life but thinking about the the consequences and blessing children before they go and how everyone's part of a whole and how the future can look hopeful can look great if we just think about how to look forwards and try to see the hope maybe so too we can also bring a wonderful future for ourselves if we just think about how to interact in the world how to participate in the world how to bring goodness to the world if we just try every little day a little bit a little bit if we work on ourselves, the only thing we could change really is ourselves. You know that famous story which I think was from Rabbi Yisrael Salanter wanted to change the world, couldn't do that wanted to change his continent, couldn't do that, wanted to change his country, couldn't do that, wanted to change his state, couldn't do that wanted to change his, his, his city, couldn't do that, wanted to change his town couldn't do that, couldn't change his block or his house or his family all he could do was change himself. When you change yourself, you by definition change everyone around you. Start with yourself a little bit every day. What can I do to better the world? What can I do to bring greatness to the world? What can I do to settle my affairs every day, to live my days in in in, in repentance, to live my days in goodness, to live my days, making sure that I'm using my time, learning a little bit, helping my family, helping those around me, contributing to the world a little bit every day. Maybe then we could live in the footsteps of Yaakov, live in the footsteps of our ancestors, of the great people in Baratius, before we think about how we could live in the footsteps of our own nation, which we turn to in Shamos, going from a family of 70, Yaakov's family, going to an actual nation of millions. And we are now a nation of millions, and we each contribute something. We each have so much to give. We just have to tap into it. And if we do so, hopefully we'll be able to actually bring the world to a much better place, bring the world to a much higher place, bring the world to a more peaceful place, a more loving place where everyone can feel that they're spokes of a wheel and everyone can feel that they're contributing and they're a part of a wonderful world and a wonderful existence where Mashiach and the Beis Hamidosh are speedily restored to us, speedily in our days. May it so be today. Join us next time as we talk the audio DT with Reb T. And I'm your host, Reb T.